You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for June 2008. Today's message is titled, The Standard of Excellence. In Colossians 3.17, the Apostle Paul gives us a mandate for business standards. The Greek word ergon, translated to deeds in this passage, refers to all types of work. Paul was saying that whatever you say or do in life, including work, should reflect the values that Christ embraced. In other words, we should be incarnating Christ's values. Now Dr. Chester brings us the message, Incarnating the Word of God in Business. How many of you think you have a money problem? Nobody? Okay. All right. Well, good. We have some honest people there. How many of you want to prosper? How many of you want to be wealthy? Okay. All right. Okay. Why do you want to be wealthy? The further the kingdom of God? Okay. Is that a good reason? That's a good reason? You think that's God's reason? Was Jesus wealthy? Was Jesus a success? But he wasn't wealthy. Okay. When we say success today, what do we mean by that? We say so-and-so was successful. What are we saying? We're saying they have a lot of money. We say Bill Gates is successful, right? Why? He's loaded. <laughs> he's got a big house. <laughs> huh? He's got a big house. He's got a big job, right? Okay. What we say Warren Buffett's a success, right? Because? Because he's wealth, wealthy. All right. So Jesus isn't wealthy. So is he successful? Okay, why? Tell me why he's successful. Tell me what the Bible says. How did Jesus define success? He always did what pleased the Father. That is one, one element of it, yes. But there is a supreme definition of success that he gives it to us. It is the essence of what he said success was all about. It's not love. Love is a great value. But in it, knowing God is, is a very key part of it. But he gave us a very key verse in John 17. Can I read it to you? When I read it to you, you'll say, oh, yeah, I knew that. Well, let me read it to you. This is uh, what we know as the high priestly prayer. He says this in verse 4. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you gave me to do. You hear that? I have glorified you on earth. Other translations say, by completing the work that you gave me to do. Now, I want to point out a couple of things here. One is the word work there is the Greek word ergon, and it happens to be the singular. It's not the plural. Jesus is not saying, I completed the works. He's saying, I completed the work. His life was an integrated whole. It was all the work of God. So success to Jesus was not denominated in dollars. Instead, success was obedience to the work that God gave him to do. Okay. Now, I know we hear that and say, okay, success is obedience. Okay, that sounds very theological and all that. But what's that got to do with me? Because I'm not Jesus. Well, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, you're going to see something very similar that I think you would clearly say applies to you. Now, we all know Ephesians 2, don't we? Because we know Ephesians 2.8, don't we? For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works. And why is it not of works? 
So you can't boast. There's no boasting here. And then we have verse 10. The next verse. For. Now, when you, when you, when you have a preposition like that, for, what's he telling you? Something about what? What purpose? There's a reason. For. Why is it that you've been saved? You ever thought about why you've been saved? You ever thought about that? Why is it? What, what's the point of salvation? Before I read Ephesians 2.10, let me just read you an article. This is out of World Magazine. This is a, a, an interview with a pastor. Please, I'm not being critical of pastors now, okay? I'm just reading what this pastor had to say. Uh, this pastor was asked the question, what is the chief priority of the church? Okay, here's what he said. It said, the church's chief priority should be evangelism. Do you, how many agree with that? Number of you agree with that. Okay. Can, can I, that, that was a setup. So don't be offended. All right? All right, here's what he says. We, all ha, we have all of eternity to worship the living God, and we have all of eternity to grow in our relationship and knowledge of God, and we have all of eternity to enjoy community with the people of God. Only here and now can we engage in evangelism and minister to a fallen world, that is at the heart of what I believe Christ meant when he spoke of building his church, and which is why I believe this is the church's chief priority, reclaiming a lost and fallen world. Okay, so that, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? it? So it sounds like that the whole game that we're in is about getting people saved and populating heaven. Is that what it sounds like? So if that's the case, then maybe we just need to set up assembly lines in our churches and um, on Sundays, what happens is they come in, and we have an altar call. People come forward. We, we talk to them. We take them over to a side room say, okay, you sure you understand the gospel? Yes, you understand you're saved by grace through faith, right? Fine, shoot them. Boom, another one going to heaven. <laughs> well, that's the mind. I mean, that sounds funny and everything, but that's the mindset that we have. We are saved to populate heaven. We're saved so we, are, we don't have to suffer the consequences of hell and being eternally separated from God. Well, let's see what the Bible has to say. Can we, can we read the Bible? Is that okay? See what the Bible has to say? Okay. Can we believe that maybe we have some wrong ideas here? A little paradigm shift. So we're at verse 10 in Ephesians chapter 2, and we've just read that we're saved by grace through faith, and it has nothing to do with us. It's all about God. And then he's, he tells us why we are saved. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, that word there, works, is really the same word in, in John, that's in John 17, verse 4. It's the word ergon, and the word ergon means all kinds of work. Now, see, what we do when we read Ephesians 2.10 is we have what I call a dualistic mindset. And a dualistic mindset means when we read that word, work, we, we kind of filter it and say, well, that's talking about evangelism. That's talking about, you know, pastoring people and ministering to people or teaching the word or prayer, things like that. So that's how we filter it. But the word is very broad. The Greek word means all kinds of work, every kind of work. And so what he's saying to us is that God has ordained you for work just like he ordained Jesus for work. Now, do you think Jesus might have been a carpenter? Okay, now why would Jesus have been a carpenter? 
You know, we don't have a lot of revelation on this. We're kind of speculating to some degree. But why do, you, why do we think he maybe is a carpenter? His father's a carpenter. Did you do what your father did? Yeah? At any point, did you do what your father did? I mean, my father was in the building trades. I spent some of my professional career and a lot of my childhood fooling around with buildings. There's a lot of buildings that have been damaged by my work in the city. But you, you can't help it. When you grow up under a father, and some of you may not have had a father, but wherever you grew up, whatever influence you had in your life, you know, you did some of the things they did. So Jesus was just like that. He grew up in the home of a father. So I have no doubt that he did carpentry work. Did God ordain that he do carpentry work? No? Huh? Was, was God surprised that Joseph was a carpenter? Huh? Hey, is, is, there, a, is there a purpose here? Is there a plan? I mean, Ephesians 2.10 says this, that I am God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that I should walk in them. Was God surprised at who my father was? Was he surprised at what my father did? No. So my experience growing up was no surprise. It was divinely ordained. Jesus' experience growing up was divinely ordained. His life was the work that God gave him to do to bring glory to the Father. And, and success was completing that work. So when we think about biblical worldview, and we think about biblical worldview of business, can we let God invade our thinking? Can we, can we think, maybe God ordained me to be a banker? Maybe God ordained me to be um, a salesman, an accountant, a lawyer? No, I'm not sure about lawyers, but... <laughs> no offense to lawyers. No, I'm not trying to... Just trying to be fun, funny. You know, every legitimate profession God is into. Can we, can we go there? I mean, does that just, just blow our minds to think that God would ordain that I w I'd be a computer scientist? I mean, gee, can, does that work? You know, because we are so ingrained with this, what I call dualism. And dualism is the bifurcation of reality. We take physical reality and put it over here. We take spiritual reality and put it over here, and it's like the two don't meet. And when we go to work in the morning, we don't think that spiritual reality has anything to do with physical reality. Isn't that, what, isn't that true? Isn't that what we think? Okay, can I, can I share with you a story out of, out of 2 Kings 6 that might change your thinking? This is the incident where Elisha is... Um, God has given him insight into what the enemies of Israel are getting ready to do. So he's continually telling the king, uh, the, king of, uh, the king of Israel what the king of Assyria is getting ready to do. So every morning they have a little conference and Elijah says, the king of Assyria is getting ready to do this, that, and the other. Of course, God's telling him all this. Now, the king of Assyria is up there trying all these tactics to try to attack Israel, and he's failing at every point because the king of Israel is countering every every move he's making very successfully. So the king of Assyria gets all of his advisors together and he has a meeting. And he says, okay, who is spying? Who's the culprit that's telling the king of Israel everything I'm thinking? And they're all sitting there looking at each other because, you know, back in those days, you know, 
they didn't mind, you know, shooting you or stabbing you or whatever. You know, we're a little more polite in our society today. So he's saying, who's, who's the enemy here? And finally, one of the advisors says, um, King, really, all of us are loyal to you. What I don't think you understand is there's this prophet down there in, in Israel, and he hears everything you say. He knows everything you think. And so he's telling the king of Israel exactly what you're going to do, and that's why the king is thwarting your every effort to defeat him. So what does the king of Assyria do? Well, let's go get this guy, as if Elisha doesn't know that. I mean, that, that to me is one. I, I, I just laugh every time I read that. I mean, what, what stupidity. So here, here they come. Here comes the army. The, they, and the king says, Where's, where is uh, Elisha? He's in Dothan. Okay. Let's go get him. So here you come. They surround Elisha's house, this whole army. It doesn't look good. And here comes Elisha's servant out. He's been, uh, you know, he's up early, you know, like a good servant. He walks out on the front porch, you know, to get the newspaper and, you know, you know kind of stretch it. And he looks and he says, whoa, we are surrounded. We're about to get annihilated. Elisha's inside with his feet up on the, on the recliner, relaxing, praying, reading the Torah or whatever. And the servant comes running in, saying, we're about to get wiped out. And Elisha says to him, no, you don't see reality. He says, Father, show my servant reality. The scripture says, open his eyes. Now, clearly he's not talking about something uh, uh, literal because the servant could see. He's talking about the perception of the spirit. Open my servant's eyes to see what is really going on. And so the Lord does. And when the servant looks again, what does he see? Remember what he saw? The army of the Lord around the Syrians. You see what reality really was? It wasn't the tangible. It was the spiritual dimension that was reality. The spiritual dimension drives and trumps the physical dimension. What's going on in the physical reality is a direct product of the spiritual reality driving it. Now, let me just give you some examples of this. This is something that happened to me about a year ago. It's probably one of the clearest examples of this, of how spiritual reality drives physical reality. I'm at a conference speaking, and there's an engineer that wants to talk to me. And this particular conference, I'm jammed. I've just got one thing after another. And I said, look, I, I don't have any time. Uh, right now, I'm getting ready to go to the gym to work out because I have worked out in three days. I'm going to work out. That's a priority for me. If you want to come to the gym, you can come to the gym, but I'm going to work out. So he came to the gym. He wanted to talk to me that badly. So we're working out. So we got through working. I said, okay, what do you want to talk to me about? He said, well, I'm having problems at work. Okay, well, all right, well, what are your problems? What's your biggest problem at work? He said, well, it's a stack of paper on my desk. I said, oh, okay, well, why is a stack of paper on your desk? He said, well, I don't have time to process it. I said, uh, well, what's, what's happening because you're not processing that paper? I said, well, it's really gumming up the works. You know, uh, the, the company really needs me to process it. There's a lot of important stuff in there that needs to be taken care of, and I, I just haven't, haven't taken care of it. And I said, well, um, you know, do you have staff? He said, yeah, i got staff. I said, why don't you train them? He said, um, I don't want to train them. I said, why don't you want to train them? He said, well, then... then they wouldn't need me. Well, why wouldn't they need you? Well, because my staff then could do everything. Well, why is it important that you be needed? Well, because I need a paycheck. I said, well, why do you need a paycheck? He says, well, I've got to pay my bills. 
I said, who's your provider? He said, the Lord. I said, it doesn't sound like it. It sounds like you've decided you're a provider. So what's going on here is he has a theology. You hear this? A theology that's saying, I have to make sure that I am needed so I will get my paycheck so I can pay my bills. Even if it means sacrificing the company. The spiritual reality, this false doctrine, this bad theology in this guy's mind is driving the tangible reality. Do you all see that? You all are looking at me like, I'm not sure you're getting this. What I'm trying to show you is what's going on in the tangible is rooted in the intangible. Everybody in this room has made a bet on life. Whether you know it or not, you have made a bet on life. You know what that bet is? That bet is the answer to the question, who is God? Everybody on this planet has made a bet in life, and it's the same bet. It's who is God. Because whoever God is to you now will drive everything in your life. Because it defines your worldview. Your worldview is your theory of everything. It's your theory of how everything works. And if, if, if your theory is like this young engineer, and but I'm not being critical of this man at all. He's very typical. He's a very hungry man for God. And I think our conversation was a transforming conversation for him. But he's so typical, we don't really have a godly view of reality because we don't really know God. We know about, about God. We hear about God, but we really don't know God. Do you remember how Jesus defined eternal life? Remember how he defined it? He defined it in John 17, 3, the verse before John 17, 4, where he defined success. We think eternal life is going to heaven. That's not the way Jesus defined it. Jesus defined eternal life as knowing the Father. The game in life for all of us is to make the right bet. And the right bet is to know the God of creation, the God that created this universe the God that created you and me, and the God that created us with such intent and purpose that he put us in this place at this time with these gifts and talents and with these opportunities to do the work that he ordained that we do. He's that intentional. Have you ever been amazed at how things work out in life? And I was talking to my son-in-law the other day. He's a physician, and I'm, of course I'm a scientist, so you know, we, we sometimes talk technical. And we were both just, talk, I was talking from the standpoint as a physicist, he was talking as a physician, and we were just amazed. You know, he was talking about how, you know, the body is just incredible. You know, it's just, it has all this incredible ability to, to deal with issues. You know, something starts going wrong, and there's something else comes in to deal with it. He says, it's unbelievable. He says, I can't believe how anybody can look at the human body and be an atheist. I said, yeah, I agree. I mean, I look at the physical universe, I look at the constants, I look at how the atom works and all the intricacies of matter, and I, to me, it would take incredible faith to be an atheist. Incredible faith. I mean, I, I don't think I've got enough faith to be an atheist. I just don't think I can get there, because if I really look at reality, it's just so overwhelmingly beautiful. And I see, as I begin to read Scripture, is Scripture alive to you? When, when you read it, does it just come alive to you? If it doesn't come alive to you, I ask the Lord to give you today an impartation of revelation of the Word of God. There's nothing else that I read that's alive like the Word of God. I can read something that I've read 
a dozen times, two dozen times, a hundred times, and something will pop out to me fresh. I, I just did a message two weeks ago on the true, well, the title of the message was, was okay, I'm a Christian, now what? I think that might be a fun, fun topic. Okay? And, I was, and my topic was Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. What was that? Y'all remember what that is? It's a great commission. Y'all, I can tell. I've got you spooked. You're afraid to talk to me. Okay. It's okay. It's all right. Okay. But what I, when, I, when I started studying that text, and I don't know how many times I've read it, I've studied it, God gave me fresh revelation on what that text said. And it, it just was life to me. Now, I don't know how well I delivered it, how well the people got it, but it was such life to me. Well, that's the way the Word of God is. It is life. And so we've got to begin to feed off of it. Knowing God is what eternal life is. That releases us then to what he has created us to do. If you believe that God is sovereign, that he is intentional and purposeful about what he's doing, then you are not an accident. Every relationship you have is not an accident. Your skills and abilities are not an accident. Your opportunities are not an accident. Can you begin to get a vision for the purpose of God and begin to do what Jesus did, which is and be able to say what he said, I've completed the work you gave me to do. Because each of us has an assignment in the plan and purpose of God. And God does have a plan and purpose going on. And our job is to get in, in lined up with that assignment. There's a biblical principle that you can use to help validate what you're called to do. It's called C4. It's covered in my book. The principle is found in how God picked people to build his tabernacle. It's the same principle that God used to, pick, to, to tell Paul how to pick elders. Okay? It's the same principle that's used in Acts 6 when they pick the people to do the food, food uh, distribution. It's also the same principle that's used in Exodus uh, chapter, I believe it's 18, where uh, Moses' Moses's father-in-law, who was a pagan, told him how to pick people to do the dispute resolution. That principle consistently pops up in Scripture. And it's the principle, if you use that, you will begin to validate the call of God in your life. It's called C4. It's in chapter 5 of my book. God has created you and loves you enough that he's given you something he wants you to do, which means everybody counts. One of the things that we do in our churches today is we send some wrong messages. Can anybody believe that? Let me just give you some illustrations. These are things that are happening in my church that I'm in conversation with my pastor about. So I'm not, I'm not trying to offend anybody or anything. I'm just trying to look at reality. And here, here's one of the things that happened recently. Uh, we had a leadership meeting, and there was a guy, an engineer in the group, that's going to go on a mission trip. So in the course of the meeting, one of the leaders says, we need to pray over this guy. He's getting ready to go to South America and do this mission trip. So we bring him up. We all gather around. We pray for him. You know, great. Great. Set him out. So he goes out on a mission trip. Two weeks later, he comes back, and he goes back to his engineering job. Now, we did not pray for him when, when he went back to his engineering job. So what did we say to him? We told him, if you go on a mission trip, that's, what, that's valuable. That, that's that's the, the work of ministry, or if you want to use the term, that's kingdom work. Okay? But if you go to work as an engineer, well, that, you know, that's nothing. You know, I mean, but after all, being an engineer is just about making money, so you can come back and tie it to the church. So the church can do the important work. Isn't that what we told him? We, we didn't speak it in words. We spoke it with our actions. Can you believe that may be a wrong message? 
Because if we believe Ephesians 2.10, the message is you've been created in Christ Jesus to do the works that God has ordained for you to do, which includes whatever you do in the marketplace. Now, that's a different worldview of work, isn't it? It has lots of implications. For example, how many of you hire people? How many of you hire people? Okay. Now, when you go hire people, how do you hire people? What do you do? You, you, got, you have a, a need. A need pops up. What's the first thing you do? You sit down and write a job description, right? Okay. And when you write that job description, what's the first thing you write down? Skill sets, right? It's the first thing you put down. Okay. So that's how we go about trying to find jobs. We go to find somebody who's got that skill set. Okay. Can I suggest to you that is not the biblical criterion for hiring? If you look at C4, you will see there's four key components. And, and the essence of C4 is recognition that when you, have, you spot a need, an opening, what you're seeing is God is saying, I have somebody that I want to put in that opening. Can you seek me deeply enough with enough discernment to discern who it is? Can you do that? It changes the way you manage. Because suddenly I'm not looking for a person, I'm looking for the person. And that, that's a very distinct difference. Now, do you know some of the statistics on hiring today? Just, just some of these for you, just for fun here. Um, statistically, what's the probability that you're going to hire somebody that's going to love their job? Statistically, it will be less than 15%. 85% of your hiring decisions will be wrong. If you, if you think that loving your job is an important criteria, 85% of your decisions are probably going to be wrong, if you are typical. Okay? What percent of the people in the workplace are proactively working to support the mission of the organization? 8.5%? Somebody else? 40? I've seen a couple of different surveys. I haven't seen 8.5%. What I've seen has been between 19 and about 25% other people are proactively working to support the mission of the organization. Now, ask the opposite. What percent are proactively working against the mission of the organization? Well, it turns out the statistics are about 25%. One in four of your employees is working proactively against you. The 50% in the middle, they don't care. They're ambivalent. Do you think there's something wrong with our workplace? I mean, you say, how do we get anything done when you start looking at these stats? How about this one? What percent of the people, the workers, will use lying as a tool to accomplish their agenda? See, if I'm trying to sell you something and I need to lie to you, it's okay with me for me to lie to you to get you to do what I want you to do or to get you to believe what I want you to believe. What percent of the workforce believes it's okay to lie and habitually does it? 40, 50, 70. 70, 80, the number is 93%. 93% of the workplace habitually uses lies to accomplish their purpose. Is there something wrong with our workplace? The problem here is we do not have a biblical worldview of work. We do not have a biblical worldview of management. We don't have a biblical worldview of how to hire people. We don't have a biblical worldview of how to sell. We don't have a biblical worldview to do hardly anything in the workplace. And you say, Lord, how do we even survive? Well, we're not surviving very well. Would you like to know what a kingdom cab driver looks like? 
And when I use the term kingdom, I don't, don't let your eschatology get, you know, mess you up here. I'm talking about bringing the rule of reigning God. Was that okay? When I say kingdom, I mean bringing the rule and reign of God into wherever. You can say a kingdom banker, a kingdom lawyer, a kingdom accountant, a kingdom salesman, a you know, kingdom consultant. How about a kingdom pastor? Oh, whoa. That could be different. Well, I've got to tell you the story. I've got too many stories. I was asked to speak to a group of pastors. There's about 65, 70 pastors in the room. Most of them are senior leaders of churches. Most of them have been senior leaders for a long time. And my job was to talk about interfacing the, with the workplace, you know, with the business guys. So, I, you know, I can't resist these venues. The devil gets into me every time. Okay? And my wife says, no, it's not the devil. It's you. So, <clears throat> so anyway, I, I'm in front of these pastors. So I said, okay, what is it all you guys want? And they said, uh, hmm. They're kind of looking at me like, you know, looking at each other like, you know, what's this guy looking for? I said, well, here, let me help you out. I, I, I know what you want. You, I, all, all you guys, you know, lead churches. What you want is a church that is so incredibly infectious that it's transforming your community. That people are looking at that place saying, wow, look at this church. Look how blessed we are. There's just tremendous blessing overflowing to us. And, and man, look at how people's lives are changed when they go there. And you know, people are just growing, and, and people are just, just, they're like magnets drawn to that church. It's just an incredible place. It's, it's a tremendous blessing to our community. It's truly a light on a hill. It is salt and light to our community. It is the body of Christ incarnate in our community. And all of them say, yeah, yeah, that's what we want. Okay, then I said, okay, who's got one? <laughs> now they're all trying to crawl under the chair. I was expecting the tomatoes at any time. But I, they were very gracious to me. But th see, that, that's the reality. Is there, there's something very, very wrong and very broken about how we do our churches. And likewise, if their churches are broken, and the church is the pillar and ground of the truth, we believe that? 1 Timothy 2.15, we, we believe that? The church is the pillar and ground of the truth? It means it should be laying the foundation by giving us a biblical worldview of how to live life. So if the church is broken... Is it, is it surprising that our families are broken? That our businesses are broken? How about that our community is broken? This discussion going on right now in the political world, I am going to tell you about the Kingdom Care Driver in a minute, but let me just do this one first. This is a quote that came off, uh, some of you may be interested in the Christian Newswire. Y'all get the Christian Newswire? You can go out and subscribe to it. It's free. It's, it's a great service. They give you all kinds of good information. But, you know, this whole thing that's going on in our political arena right now about the candidates and we have a Mormon a candidate for president and his faith and all that. And he, he's trying to distance himself from his, his faith. Okay? Candidates and office holders should be judged by their positions and views on the issues, not their faith. Wait a minute. How do I get to my positions and views? My positions and views are the product of my faith. How can I separate my faith from my positions and views? And views. So, see here how we are broken. We have a broken church. Now we are broken in our public sector. We're broken in our families. We're broken in our companies. Every area of our life is broken because we have a broken church. Now, don't don't hear me being. I know there are a lot of of, of great messages taught every Sunday. Great Bible teachers. There's some great messages taught. But can we believe that maybe our understanding of the Bible is not complete, and it's many times wrong? 
And we have to continually get in the Word and ask ourselves the hard questions, what is the Word of God really saying? And that's what I'm trying to challenge you, is to begin to say, what does the Bible really say? And what does it say about me and my work? And let me just give you another picture before I tell you about the Kingdom Cab Driver. Okay? What should be your handbook for business? Okay? How many of you view the Bible as your handbook for business? Yeah, most, most, very few of you do. That's very common. Uh, I was actually uh, teaching a seminar a few years ago, and I have a little prop. Um, and the prop is a Bible with a, with a cover. I put a cover on it, and on the cover I put Handbook of Organizational Excellence and Prosperity. Now, please don't let the term prosperity trip you up. I'm not talking about the prosperity theology, okay? I'm talking about when you begin to line up with God, the flow and favor of God's on you. You prosper. That's what I'm talking about. Would you all believe that? Okay. All right, so I've got this book, and, of course, at the bottom I say, By the Creator of the Universe, but I put my thumb over that. So I'm, I'm, I'm talking to these, these students. That were, this, is a, this is a business seminar, and I'm saying, okay, how many of you have studied business from this book? I hold it up. And they could read the title, or all looking at it. It's a handbook of organizational excellence and prosperity. And one guy said, oh, yeah, I have. <laughs> I said, really? Tell me the course that you use this book. You know, and, of course, they're all, you know, scratching their hand. Wow, I've never seen that book. You know, what, where did that come from? Of course, then I show them what it is. And, and here, here's the logic behind it. If God created the universe, we all can see that? He created the universe? Is there anything he didn't create? Okay, in creating the universe, did he make all the rules? Okay, are there any rules that work in his creation that he didn't make? I don't think so. And so when you begin to realize he created everything, he made all the rules, then we need to be looking to his rule book if we want to know how to play the game in his sandbox, just so to speak. Use a metaphor here. It's like we're playing in God's sandbox. What are the rules in his sandbox? Well, the Bible gives us his rules. We should be looking as the Bible, to the Bible as a handbook for everything. It is the starting point for our worldview in every area of life. You want to know how to pastor a church? You better start looking at the Bible. You want to know how to run a company? You better start looking at the Bible. You want to know how to rule a community, how to make laws that are just? You better start looking at the Bible. I know that's a paradigm shift. All right, so let me just give you an illustration. When you begin to look at the Word of God as the handbook, and begin to really try to walk out the reality of what it says. Let me give you a picture of what it looks like. And this does address the question of being relevant in a multicultural environment, in a pluralistic environment. How do you be relevant to that? Because, you know, we, we, have, to, we have to figure out some way to rub shoulders with people that we know have a different answer to the question, who is God? So how do we do that? So here's a, here's a, here's a picture of how, how it can be done. There's a guy, in, 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 uh, and I don't know what city he was in, I'm going to say he was in New York City just for purposes of illustration. And uh, he's, uh, he, wants to, he wants a cab ride, so he calls a cab company. And this cab rolls up. First of all, the first thing he notices about the cab is it's clean. Anybody been, seen a clean cab? Okay. It's a clean cab. Oh. And then the guy jumps out of the cab as soon as he gets there, and he's dressed very nicely. You know, nice clothes. He's got a tie on. He's got a nice hat on. And he smiles and he greets the passenger and says, I'm here to serve you. And he opens up the back door. He grabs the guy's bags 
And as the guy's getting in the back seat, he hands him a card and said, here's my mission statement. Would you take a moment and read that while I put your bags in the trunk? Okay, well, this guy's a little shocked. Not only at the way he's been treated, he looks inside the cab and what does he see? Well, it's clean. It's not only clean, the seat is comfortable. You ever been in a cab where the you know, seats are you know, kind of, the springs are broken and maybe popping through the upholstery and it's just a mess. Well, this is really nice, very nice seat. It's very comfortable. I got this card in my hand. What's this card say? My name is so-and-so. I am here to serve you and to deliver you to your destination safely and as efficiently as possible. Please let me know if you need anything. Okay? The cab driver puts the luggage in the trunk. He runs around, jumps in the car, turns around and says, Sir, what beverage would you like? I have coffee. I have tea. I have bottled water. I have soft drinks. I have diet and regular soft drinks. What would you like? Okay? Well, you're kind of stunned there as you go, oh, well, water will be okay. He says, now, what would you like to listen to? I have, here's a variety of stations I have. Here's music that I have. If you want, I can give you a tour. Or if you'd like, I can give you a, I, well, I'll be happy to talk to you about anything you want to talk about. Okay. And, sir, how, how about the temperature? Is it okay? I can turn it up or down, whatever you want. We'll make sure that your needs are absolutely met. And, by the way, before we get started, let me tell you, I've already mapped out the, the most efficient route for us to go. I've checked with our traffic. And here's the way we're going to go. This will be the minimum time, the safest way for us to get you to your definite destination. What does that look like to you? A big tip. Huh? <laughs> this looks like Jesus driving a taxi cab. Now, at the end of the trip, the guy is just stunned. He's just had an incredible experience. And so he turns to the guy and says, um, how's your business? Oh, he said, oh, it's doing great. Doing great. He said, uh, well, how did you get into this? He said, well, it's real simple. I started looking around at how everybody else ran their cab service. They had a bad attitude, dirty cabs, sloppy, treated customers badly. They're having to wait in cab lines all the time, you know, to get business because nobody wants to hire them except they absolutely have to. He says, I just decided to be different. He says, I never wait in cab lines. He said, I, I now have so much business, every time I, I serve somebody, I give them my card, and they, when they come back to town, they always call me. And now the business is so flourishing that I am training other cab drivers. Okay? Now, if we were put that into the church language, we would call that discipleship. Okay? I'm discipling other cab drivers and how to run a cab business. And he says, I bet your business is really doing well. I said, oh, I'm making more money than I've ever made. But, no, hands down. He says, things are just great. And so how do you feel about life? He says, I really am blessed. I am fulfilled at what I'm doing. I know I'm blessing people, serving people. I am so happy. I can't wait to get up in the morning every day. Now that's what a kingdom cab driver looks like. You see, anybody seen one? That's what I thought. But you could take that same picture into any area of life. To being a banker, to being a salesman, to being an accountant. Whatever it is you do, you can take that same model because all it is is the Word of God being incarnate in you. That's all it is. It's that simple. Now, when we, we start thinking about how do we become relevant in a multicultural environment, in a pluralistic environment, this is the way you do it, is you start looking like Jesus. One of the things we're not teaching our churches today well is a biblical theology of work. Now, Titus 2, 9, and 10 gives us a great picture of a biblical theology work. I wish I had time to, to 
unload that passage for you and really, you know, give you the full teaching there. But basically there are three key things that if you do these things that you will make, you can survive in any multicultural environment you want and you will be an incredible testimony to Christ. Three things are this. Number one is Titus 2, 9 and 10, you show up. Okay? Now, you, to understand this text, you have to go into the Greek. You, it, I, I, I really need 30 minutes to give you this, but I'm going to give you the high points and maybe we can have a private conversation later. But the, the first Greek word there, that talk, the first aspect there is to show up. And it means to show up in every way. And we think, well, that's trivial. Sure, you show up. No, you don't show up. Show up means to show up emotionally, show up physically, you know, show up mentally. In every way. I mean, how many people do you know that you say, that guy's out to lunch? Well, he's not showing up. So the first thing you do in being a, a, a great worker is you show up. The second thing you do, okay, is you show up with the right heart. Because it talks about, you know, you, want, you don't want to be speaking negatively. Well, what, what is the heart? The heart is the source of our words. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So you've got to, you've got to show up at work, cleaned up. Right with God. Good fellowship. In tune with Him. Things released. Be at peace with God. I'm there. I'm totally there. I am there with a right heart, and it's expressed with the way I use my tongue. And the last thing is, you subordinate personal agendas. Now, this is the hardest one, because almost every one of us is driven by our personal agendas. You are there solely to the work for the good of the organization. The statistics tell me there's a 75% probability you're not going to do that. And so we have to be proactive about working for the good of the organization. And this is a biblical worldview of work here. Now, when you do those three things, Titus 2, 9, and 10 says, you become trustworthy. Would you trust somebody like that? I mean, that's somebody you can build with. I, I can go with that guy. And when you do that, then the text says something utterly phenomenal. It says, you put lipstick on God. It uses the word cosmeo there. And that word cosmeo is the word we get cosmetics from. You have made God look good. Some of the different translations translate a little bit differently, but one of them says, you make God look good. So what you have done by your work and your attitudes and the way you approached your work, you have been a witness to Christ. And you probably never gave him a track. And you may never ask him, you know, do you want to receive Christ or giving them the four spiritual laws? And there's nothing wrong with any of that. But what I'm saying, what's wrong is we are not working in a way that honors God. Most of us don't. Most of us get to work, and it's just a chore. It's just something we have to do. It's not something that we feel called to do, and therefore we don't do it well. And therefore, we are not a good witness. How many of you have seen people run around their offices passing out tracks, and they're lousy workers? You seen that? What happens to those tracks? In the trash can, there's absolutely no standing. Nobody's listening to that person. But you let somebody be a great worker, what happens? Well, now I want to, I want to know what makes you tick. Tell me why you do what you do. That's what opens up. When we began to get a biblical worldview of work, a biblical worldview of business, a biblical worldview of church, a biblical worldview of family, a biblical worldview of community, and begin to walk that out, it's transforming. It will indeed change our culture. It will change our society. It will change our families. It will change us. It changes everything we touch. And that's what we've got to get to is get 
and grab hold of a biblical worldview of life because it's a theory of everything and all of us are living out of a worldview that's based on our view of God. So the, the more accurate we are with our view of God, our theology, the better we will be at living out a biblical worldview. So Lord, give you grace to do that. Let me pray for you. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your goodness and the fact that you have designed in a marvelous universe and that you have given us the job of ruling your creation. Lord, would you give us the grace to step up to our responsibilities? Would you give us the grace to learn to walk in fellowship with you with such intimacy, with such clarity, so tuned into you that we do see reality, that we're not distracted by the tangible, but we see beyond the tangible to the intangible. We see what's really going on, and we have the discernment to know how to really address problems. So, Lord, would you give us grace and favor to do that well? Lord, we thank you for these men. We speak a blessing over them, a fresh revelation of your call and your purpose for their lives. Lord, I pray that you would validate in their hearts today the value you have on them. May they go out of here with a new sense of meaning, purpose, and significance because they know you. So, Lord, give them much grace. Give them much favor. We commit them to you in Jesus' name. Amen. 